Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Coming up on today's show, Edmonton police are investigating a disturbing story. There are reports that people have been using vulnerable people to get vaccinated so they can get the QR code. We'll also talk about the new tutoring initiative by the Alberta government to help students who may have fallen behind during the pandemic. And an historic Canadian insurrection has some pretty uncanny parallels with the Capitol riots. A story out of Edmonton that is really, um, it's really, really well, it's crazy. I mean, you can't use a better word. Uh, Brianna Carson-Smith had the story, and uh, she joins us now to tell us all about it. Hi, Brianna. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Shay. Thanks for having me. Okay. This story, just walk us through it. Essentially, what it comes down to is police investigating if people are paying vulnerable people, homeless people, to get vaccinated for them? Yeah. I mean, we started hearing about this really when vaccinations started, and it just sounded so fake to be honest Mm -hmm. uh but we did uh eventually around christmas time start hearing from some sources that this was happening and that police were investigating and this week we were able to confirm that police are investigating this so what this boils down to is ahs confirmed that its staff in hospitals have heard from patients uh who are vulnerable in our city that they have been offered money to get multiple covid19 vaccinations using a false identity so uh You know, we spoke with one nurse yesterday who said that they treated one patient who got seven COVID-19 vaccinations in one day and was paid $700 for it. Uh, The purpose is that there are people out there, as we know, anti-vaxxers who don't want to be vaccinated, but they want that proof of vaccination so that they can travel, go to restaurants, you know, um, participate in daily life. Maybe work, Uh, right, in some cases? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And they're willing to pay for it rather than get a free vaccine. Uh, the nurse was told from a patient who participated in, the, in this that the people were paying $2,000 to a broker. Uh, the broker then found a vulnerable uh, person in Edmonton to get the vaccination, uh, paid them $100, and they went and got the vaccination. A uh, broker kept $1,900, and the anti-vaxxer got a QR code, even though they're not vaccinated. Unbelievable. Now, the same person being used over and over. Have you had a chance to talk to anybody? Is that is there potential health effects because of that? So, so far, it, we haven't seen adverse reactions okay. from it, which is great news. But AHS clearly says it's, this is not advisable. You know, there are global recommendations on how many doses you're supposed to get and when, and seven in a day is dangerous, even though we haven't seen adverse reactions. Um, now, we're getting a lot of texts, and I know, and you said yesterday uh, uh, during the broadcast that you don't want to give away exactly how this person is going about doing it, but everybody's saying, wait a minute, I had to show my driver's license. in order." I mean, obviously, you don't need photo ID in all cases, right? You got it. Yeah. And like you mentioned, I don't want to walk people through this because it's an editorial decision that we don't want to encourage this. But what I can say is that Alberta Health Services confirmed that those receiving a vaccination are only asked to provide one piece of ID. So that can be your Alberta health care card, which has a name and a number, no photo, or 
a driver's license, which obviously has a photo, or a social insurance number, again, no photo, or a birth certificate, no photo, or a passport, which does have a photo. So you've got three options there uh, with no photo ID that you only have to provide um, one piece of identification. The other thing we know is that Alberta Health wants people to get vaccinated, and vulnerable people often don't have photo ID. They don't have a driver's license because they don't have an address to link it to, et cetera, et cetera. And it's difficult for yeah, them to right. get photo ID, right? Or they've had it stolen in the shelter. We've heard those stories before. So when they go to get a vaccination, they're not asked for photo ID because they don't have it. So they can hand over a healthcare card with no photo identification attached to it, and it might not be theirs. So police investigating, I mean, I imagine it's pretty tough to try and track this down, but uh, hopefully we get, do they have any indication as to who this person might be or are they still just asking for any information? Where are they at in in terms of their investigation? The nurses that we've heard from have a lot of information, which is extraordinarily useful, including um, some names of people in the community who are organizing this, the brokers. The trouble is, is that if you think about the vulnerable people who are agreeing to get the shots could actually get prosecuted as well, because they're the ones also participating in the fraud by agreeing, uh, using uh, a different identity. Um, So it's difficult to say whether we're actually even going to see any prosecution because of this, because although these patients are willing to chat with their nurses as they're getting care in the hospital, they might not necessarily be willing to give that same information to police. We do understand, uh, as I say, EPS does have an open investigation. It's in the preliminary stages. Uh, we know that some uh, nurses and physicians have been told to prepare uh, to be subpoenaed for the information that they've received. But uh, I don't honestly know that this is going to end up with any charges, which, frankly, is too bad. Yeah, absolutely it is. Yeah, it's just a, an incredible story. Uh, Brianna, thanks so much for spending some time with us this morning and uh, having the discussion. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Jay. That's Brianna Carsten-Smith, a reporter with Global Television in Edmonton, who's uh, got her hands on this story, and it's a good one. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We are going to be chatting right now with Dr. Wendy Sukir, who is the founder of the Diversity Institute at Ryerson University and the academic research lead for the Future Skills Center. Uh, Dr. Sukir, thanks so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time. 
Well, thanks for having me, and that's great news for Alberta. It is, right? I mean, when you take a look, and this is something you've been working on throughout the pandemic, Just, uh, and we know there's all kinds of students, and parents will tell you, uh, for some students it's been fine, for others it's been really, really difficult with the online, in-person, online, in-person. Um, tutoring is really a, a valuable resource that we can use to try and close some of those gaps, right? Absolutely. And, you know, our perspective, uh, I'm... My daughter's launched, but tutoring was invaluable um, to to our family because it really made a big difference for her. But, you know, I'm relatively financially secure. I have all the wherewithal I need to, to pay for tutors to yep. do what's required. And we know that in Canada there are huge disparities, and COVID's made them worse, between people who have resources people who don't. We know that historically there have been huge differences in the success rates for racialized black, indigenous students, and so on. And so tutoring can also, in my view, be really important in bridging some of those huge gaps. When we take a look at the situation around this pandemic and what's gone over the course of the last two years, do we have any idea yet how much damage? Is there any way to quantify what's being done for some students in terms of how far they've been set back? You know, people people have been really focused on sh- on short term uh, impacts, but uh, the, the estimates have been in the trillions of dollars. And you know, I do a lot of work on looking at uh, diversity and inclusion in the workplace, and who's at the top of organizations and on boards, and so on. And if we don't invest now, we can't <laughs> expect. Um, to see advances with diversity and inclusion and narrowing of wage gaps and so on in the future. Like, we really, really run the risk that all kids are are losing out, but some kids even more than others. Um, Alberta announcing this tutoring plan. They've had other tutoring plans and things like that, but when you take a look at what's going on in other places around the country and around the world, um, are we... I mean, we're two years in, so are we all this far behind in terms of recognizing these gaps and trying to come up with ways to deal with them? For sure. In fact, I could be wrong because a lot of our research has focused really on uh, what's gone on globally and what's been going on in in Ontario. But I uh, I think Alberta may be leading the way on this in terms of providing large scale access to free online tutoring. It doesn't solve all of the problems, but it's certainly an incredibly helpful asset for uh, for families as well as students. Why is tutoring so optimal? Why is it, uh, I mean, besides the obvious in terms of you can cover the content, um, why does it sort of work so well to, to make up these shortcomings? Well, because most classrooms, and I say this as a university professor, you you have to teach to the mean. You know, tutoring allows a lot more customization, a lot more focus on on individualized um, support and meeting the needs of, of kids where they are. And certainly in my own experience as a parent, you know, the tutor, there were there were subjects, even though I have a PhD, you know, I couldn't help my daughter with her grade 10 yeah. math. I couldn't help her with her grade 11 French. So certainly tutoring was important for, for helping um, with the content. But even more importantly, and this has come out in the research that we've done, tutoring can really help with those intangibles, with confidence, with 
engagement, with helping keep kids on time, because a huge amount of academic success is just being organized and doing things when you need to do them. So the, the, the benefits are immense. And what we found was that the impact on families was massive in terms of reducing stress for the whole entire family. And the tutors themselves, because we relied on um, university students, they also benefited. They developed new skills, uh, plus they had um, work opportunities. So it really was a win-win-win experience um, in terms of the programs we've been running. And, you know, you, I think we just need to do it at scale because there's such great need and the evidence is really clear. It has a big impact. In, in in making it available, um, as we said, this were the uh, Alberta government is announcing plans for their e tutoring hub. So this is online tutoring. As we said, they'll expand to other forms of tutoring uh, down the road. But right now, it's online tutoring. Uh, is all tutoring equal, or is there you know can you do just as well with online extra help as you can if you do it in person? I mean, it's not going to be perfect. You have to do what you can do, but is there a difference there? For sure, because the you know in person um, the evidence is pretty pretty clear in person tutoring and support you you have much stronger relationships than when you do things online and of course we still in this country have a massive digital divide so online tutoring requires students and their families to have access to typically high-speed internet and devices and the skills to use them and so on. So e-tutoring certainly doesn't serve everybody equally well, um, but but it is something that you can do at scale. It can be affordable, and as I said, we see opportunities to leverage um, the skills of post-secondary students, create work opportunities for them, and and have them engage with with students, which is a much more economic model than using, um, you know, professional teachers, for example. Uh, interesting discussion, and uh, you know, these kinds of things are going to have to happen as we go along here. I mean, a lot of catch up to do. I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much, Doctor. Well, thanks. Thanks for including me, and great news for Albertans. Yeah, you bet. Thank you very much. There's Dr. Wendy Sukier, who is the founder of the Diversity Institute at Ryerson University and academic research lead for the Future Skills Centre, who's done a lot of work around this and put together a report talking about just how important it is to recognize uh, some of the shortcomings that we've created by our response to different mm, waves, surges, whatever you want to call it. You know how it's been. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. Let's have trial by combat. The president is willing to stake his reputation on the fact that we're going to find criminality there. down under your chairs if necessary so we have folks entering the rotunda and coming down this way so we'll update you as soon as we can but just be prepared stay calm multiple reporters have said that they've seen at least one person being carried out of the capitol on a stretcher i've spoken to the president i asked him to talk to the nation to tell him to stop this this is not who we are Uh, this afternoon 
I announced the citywide curfew for the District of Columbia beginning at 6 p.m. this evening, going until 6 a.m. tomorrow morning. It's chaos. It borders on sedition. And it must end now. I call on this mob to pull back and allow the work of democracy to go forward. That was January 6th. 2021, one year ago today, of course, the attack on the U.S. Capitol. Um, All kinds of speeches, ceremonies, recognition of what happened one year ago. Um, Bottom line, um, it's a a pretty dramatic, stunning blow against, well, democracy in the United States. A lot of people, a lot of very high-ranking people talking about the state of democracy in the U.S. and how they see it as being in peril, at risk. Hanging in the balance. You know, we hear some people talking about civil war of all things. Now, are they being hyperbolic? I don't know. I really don't. Um, There's certainly a lot of people that would know that are very concerned about things. We're going to chat right now with Roy McSkimming, who is the author of the novels Laurier in Love and McDonald, and recently put together a piece about some Canadian connections to the situation in the U.S. Uh, Roy, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Good morning, Shay. Great to be here. First of all, when we talk about, we'll get to the Canadian story in a minute, but let's just talk about what we're seeing in the United States right now to sort of lay the groundwork for how it relates to Canada's history. Um, I'm not wrong in saying there's some very high-ranking politicians and, and military people and um, who are saying, you know what, democracy is under threat in the U.S. right now. Absolutely, yeah. There was an op-ed in the Washington Post recently by three retired U.S. Army generals who warned uh, that they're afraid uh, if there's a coup next time, it could succeed. And then we had Biden speaking this morning um, to, to, from, in Congress, uh, talking about how fragile American democracy is and calling on the people to, to, to rally around it. And it's really, I think it's really hard for a lot of us to, to, to wrap our head around, um, but it just, it does show how tenuous democracy can be. Now, you've drawn some great parallels to, I guess we can call it the Canadian insurrection, uh, like 175 years ago. <laughs> but, but tell us the story about Canada's, um, yeah, I guess you can call it an uprising, an insurrection, whatever you want. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was, it was a both a rising and an insurrection. And, um, I, you know, it's, it's not widely known anymore, but in 1849, uh, Canada was a a, a, a small colony consisting basically of Ontario and Quebec at that point. Uh, and uh, its capital was in Montreal, uh, where, where there was a, quite a, a, a large, elegant, wooden parliament building. Um, and the, I, I published a piece in the Globe and Mail yesterday about this, and it was illustrated with a painting that really shows dramatically what happened that night. Uh, it shows the, the Parliament building on fire and flames leaping into the sky. Um, and uh, just, in other words, what, had, what, what started, uh, what threatened to happen in Washington a year ago actually happened here. <laughs> Uh, 170 some years ago, as you said, uh, except worse, because the parliament burned to the ground. And the amazing thing was that democracy didn't burn with it. And, right. And uh, that was kind of the story. The parallels um, to um, what happened in the U.S. last year and what happened in Canada way back in 1849 are kind of jarring. I mean, it's, it's that whole sort of us versus them partisan 
not even partisan, but you know what I mean. Um, it's the us versus them political situation. Just tell us what was sort of the, the catalyst for this uprising. Yeah, the parallels are jarring, really. Uh, and, and there was this tremendous divide in those days, in the 1840s in Canada, and all through the 19th century, really, between what, what they used to call the two races, and what they meant by that is not by what we would mean now. Uh, they, they were talking about English and French. Um, and there was such animosity, especially on the side of the English, I have to admit. Um, you know, the, the French were... Uh, not only uh, speaking a different language, but uh, uh, most of them were Roman Catholic, and um, the, uh, the majority of English Canadians were Protestant, although it was a mixture, but still, that division ran right down the society, and um, a couple of political leaders tried to bridge that divide in, in 1849. Uh, Robert Baldwin and, and Louis Lafontaine uh, were the, the first political leaders who really uh, were implementing what we now think of as democracy, the, the, you know, the will of the uh, people expressed through their elected representatives in Parliament. And they, they led a coalition government that uh, combined English and French MPs. And uh, the, the, uh, the English-Canadian uh, folks in Montreal and, and the big businessmen in Montreal who were, who were Anglophones didn't like that. They, they didn't like the way things were going. They felt the French had too much power and uh, that, that Britain was not uh, treating Canada properly anymore because Canada was still a British colony. But there was a depression going on because of things Britain had done, and uh, there were bankruptcies, and, and the business people were very out of sorts. And, and they, uh, they actually uh, incited um, a mob that marched through the streets at night in Montreal after uh, listening to, to some political speakers. They, had, they were carrying torches, they were chanting slogans, and they stormed Parliament. They broke down the front doors and got into the... Uh, chamber and began beating up the the, the MPs. Uh, and but the funny thing is, the, the MPs were a tough bunch in in those days, and they they fought back. They they threw punches, they they threw books and ink bottles at the <laughs> at the attackers. But they were outnumbered. They were outnumbered, and uh, pretty soon there was uh, some some hooligan was seizing the the mace, and another flopped down into the speaker's chair. You know, which which wow. invokes images like we saw on TV Certainly from Washington. Does. Yeah, and within uh, another few minutes, a fire started deliberately, and the the building burned to the ground. That's how it happened, and uh, a, a very a very sobered uh, group of MPs uh, met next uh, next morning. Uh, Baldwin and Lafontaine insisted they should they should ca- try and car- in fact carry on the work of government, carry on the work of democracy, uh, no, no matter what happened to the building itself. Which is also what we saw um, the elected representatives in the United States say: we must carry on, we must finish the work. Um, Indeed. How yeah. how ultimately did this? play out? How long did this sort of unrest last, and what was the uh, final outcome? Well, the unrest did last uh, for uh, quite a few days afterwards, because the mob uh, was was roaming freely in the streets. Law enforcement was very, very weak in those days, and uh, uh, but Fortunately, the the government had the backing of of the governor general, Lord Elgin, who uh, sup- he and the British government actually supported the move towards self government that was happening here. Um, 
and eventually um basically the, you know the, the 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 salvation of 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 it all and and the, was that all sides agreed to basically uh try and make democracy work you know they accepted the way the system works they 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 people gave up trying to uh uh, overthrow a government when they didn't like the results of an election and just as biden was saying this morning you you you, you can't just love your country when your side wins in the election you, you know you've got, you've got to abide by the system if if it's ever going to work if you're going to have a democracy and uh, so the idea of imposing you know will uh, the, like the, the people's will by by acts of force was never really revived in this country and eventually, the Conservative Party did just what the uh, Baldwin and Lafontaine were doing. They were they were liberals. Uh, the Conservatives, under John A. Macdonald and George Etienne Cartier, uh, created a, a French English party that uh, try you know did did everything it could to be a big tent party that was inclusive, inclusive of people of different language, different religion, different regions. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that's the pattern of, of uh, political parties yeah. that have formed government ever since. Exactly, and, and, and the parties that will, um, you know, exploit that and capitalize that and, and further that divide and drive that wedge in deeper uh, to the outcome that we see now. Interesting discussion. Uh, Roy, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure, Shay. Thank you. Great stuff. Thank you very much. That is okay. uh, Roy McSkimming, an author uh, of the books uh, Laurier in Love and MacDonald, giving us a little history lesson on Canada's insurrection that happened way back in um, 1849. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. 